right, everybody, welcome to St. Paul's Hospital Morning Report podcast. Uh, unfamiliar start here. This is Stefan Voyer hosting. Danny Ennis, I'm told, is in Maui. I'm going to introduce all the participants, we'll exchange pleasantries, and then we'll get right into a case. I'm joined today by Barry Casson. Hey, Barry. Hey, Steph. How's the island? Stable. Thank you. Katrina Dutkiewicz. Hey, Katrina. Hi. Glad to be back. Special guest and first-timer, Gerald DeRosa. Hey, Steph. Uh, glad to be here. For our, our non-UBC audience, Gerald is a man of many talents, a nephrologist at Royal Columbian Hospital in New Westminster, and king of Royal Columbian Hospital. So, oh, God. Very, <laughs> very grateful to have Gerald here. That's very cool. And our presenter tonight, Sabina Freeman, PGY3 at UBC, currently Chief Medical Resident at St. Paul's Hospital. Hello, Sabina. Hello, hello. Excited to be here. Oh, this is cool. Okay. I feel like I've got all kinds of special powers because Danny's not here. I'm going to totally abuse those powers, whatever they are. Any any uh, personal updates here? Anyone want to tell us anything special before we get started? Yeah, I just want to say that I'm really happy this is the beginning of a new era for these podcasts, and I'm really, really delighted that Gerald's joining us and in future other this uh, clinical teaching unit directors from the various teaching sites, so I'm really excited. Yeah, very cool time. We're hoping to get some more consistency in our uh, output here, and so this is how that's going to start. Okay, Sabina, without any further ado, let's get into it. All right, sounds good. Uh, so this is a 50-something-year-old woman who presented with a two-day history of abdominal pain, nausea, and some loose stools, and she was referred to us for some lymphadenopathy. So a bit more about her past. Um, she's actually quite healthy. She had a nasoceptal reconstruction about three years ago for a nasoceptal deformity that was causing her to have recurrent rhinitis. And then she had some microscopic hematuria that was incidentally found on routine blood work urinalysis done by her family physician uh, about a year ago. And she underwent cystoscopy and cytology and everything came back normal. Otherwise, she was just on some hormone replacement therapy for uh, menopausal symptoms. And she took valcyclovir PRN for cold sores maybe about once a year. Uh, otherwise, socially, she's Caucasian, born and raised in Canada. Uh, lives now with a cat, a lifelong non-smoker, drank maybe social amounts of alcohol, and no other history of substance use. So in terms of her history of presenting illness, um, like I said, a two-day history of abdominal pain that she described as pretty diffuse. It was in some ways both sharp and dull, uh, mostly in the right upper quadrant, maybe under the breastbone. She thinks maybe it radiated somewhat to the back. She didn't have quite diarrhea. It was more like just loser stools just for the last day, but no blood, no melina. Her baseline is one to two form bowel movements a day. And then she had some nausea, but no vomiting. She had poor oral intake for the last day or so just because of all the nausea and pain. And her loose stools improved somewhat with this just because she had less going in. Uh, she had denied any fevers, chills, sweats. She maybe had some generalized myalgias as well. Uh, no sick contacts, no recent travel, no raw or questionable food. Uh, she denied any urinary symptoms and she wasn't sexually active. Uh, she'd never had pain like this before. Uh, no history of weight loss, if anything, maybe a bit more weight gain in the last six months. No night sweats, no fatigue. Uh, so why is she here? Really, she was set to travel in a few days. Um, so she did a COVID rapid test. Given the era we're in, it was negative. 
And then she went by a walk-in clinic who they were actually closing. So they said, maybe just go to the eMERGE so you can get seen quickly before your trip. So on physical exam, when she first came in, she had temperature of 37.2, heart rate and blood pressure were normal at 85 and 115 over 75. And she was on room air. She looked quite well, a bit uncomfortable. Cardiovascular respiratory exams were normal. Her abdominal exam, she was soft, non-distended, non-tender, no palpable organomegaly. Uh, She did have a palpable anterior cervical lymph node that was maybe one to two centimeters. And then for her initial labs, again, not super exciting. Her hemoglobin was normal. Her white count was 13.8, of which neutrophils were 8.4 and lymphocytes were 4.5, so both a little bit elevated. Her platelets were normal. She had normal light electrolyte panel. Ionized calcium was normal at 1.25, and her creatinine was 79, which was her baseline as well. Her liver panel was normal, but her albumin was 30. So I know what you're thinking. Uh, why is this a morning report, Spina? I think that's fair. So the, C- the uh, Emerge department ordered a CT scan of her abdomen that showed pathologically enlarged lymph nodes adjacent to the celiac artery, immediately anterior to the IBC. The most dominant one was 27 millimeters. And she had numerous lymph nodes that extended up to the hepatic hilum as well. There was another mildly enlarged one in the left uh, mid-abdominal mesenteric fat that was 14 millimeters. And the spleen was mildly enlarged at 15.5 centimeters. Otherwise, the liver, gallbladder, kidneys, adrenals, pancreas um, were normal. So what do you guys think so far? What would you think anything of this? Oh, boy. (laughs) Gerald, you want to take your first swing here? So, you know, I guess... Based on the information, I always, when we run morning report at Royal Columbian Hospital, I always tell them, you know, start with the big categories, pick something relatively objective, and then use the information to kind of move things up and down. Now, I was wondering if Sabina knew I was already going to be in this podcast because she said microscopic hematuria, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and a septal deformity. So, um, so initially, I think in the history, I was thinking some sort of autoimmune phenomenon, you know, the, which can present with many different manifestations, you know, this septal deformity, microscopic hematuria, and then now abdominal pain. As you move through it, you know, I think it's still in the consideration, but now you've got lymphadenopathy. And I always tell, you know, the trainees try and pick, you know, the, the most objective abnormality. So clearly, this person's lymphadenopathy is an issue. And so that brings in the whole concept of could this be something uh, hematologic slash malignant? Could it be infectious? So those would be the big three categories that I'd be thinking of at the present time. And then, you know, I would go from there and see what else I wanted to kind of investigate further. Can you just spell out for us what you were interested in, what you were thinking about with the nasal septal deformity and the microscopic hematuria? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we'd be thinking about some sort of small vessel vasculitis. So definitely, even with initially with the nasal, whenever someone tells me they have a nasal septal deformity, it just, you know, perks up my ears as a nephrologist who has seen a fair amount of vasculitis. And then when you add in that transient microscopic hematuria that the urologic investigations did not find anything, then that also raised red flag. That being said, you know, I do get referred in an office setting a lot of times intermittent microscopic hematuria that you'd never find an actual answer to. But, uh, you know, that would have uh, kind of pointed me towards a granulomous polyangiitis situation. Yeah. So I'd probably then look into more, you know, pulmonary manifestations. You know, obviously as a nephrologist, I'd start probing more about this hematuria issue. 
you know, was it one sample only? Were there subsequent samples that resolved? And, uh, you know, there's no documentation of things like proteinuria. And then presumably, did someone do any sort of serologic workup? Usually what would happen is the urologist would often send those patients to the nephrologist to work it up further once they've done their usual bag of tricks, the ultrasound, cystoscopy, urine cytology type situation. But if it was a transient phenomenon, they may have just decided it was a benign situation and not didn't require any further follow-up. Right. Yeah. I think that's like that's such a good example of, of what we're trying to do here with the show is is you sort of describe your original thinking and then how your thinking evolves. So then the lymphadenopathy points you in a different direction. Katrina, what are you thinking right now? Yeah, I think my thought process was similar to Gerald as soon as I heard that kind of nasoseptal and microscopic hematuria. I find those are things that on history patients often discount, right? Like, oh, I had this, you know, nasoseptal reconstruction. It was nothing. It's in the past. But that kind of flags that autoimmune process as well for me, thinking about that sort of uh, GPA process, as Gerald was saying. I also wondered about the like oral HSV one times per year, it's not a lot of flares, but could there be an element of immunosuppression? And I know that can go along with autoimmune processes as well. So even just in that past milk history, that's sort of the the route that was flagged. But then as Sabina was talking, I was wondering, oh, you know, why in fact was this person referred to internal medicine? So then we came to the lymphadenopathy and then I have a very similar initial differential with those sort of top three categories as Gerald was describing, the autoimmune, malignant, infectious. And I feel like much as it comes up time and time again, but as soon as there's diffuse lymphadenopathy, then I think about TB. And I also wondered about just with her description with the diarrhea about any possible parasitic diseases. We said she hasn't traveled anywhere recently, but she's about to travel. And so I'd be interested to know a little bit more about previous travel history or where she's lived in the past for we're wondering about a potential infectious cause for this especially with that splenomegaly too. Mm. Barry, when you, so I'm sure you're going to agree that uh, the differential is pretty broad at this point and that we're looking at inflammatory, infectious, and malignant things. What do you think about this sort of history that she's only been sick for two days? What do you make of that? Well, I uh, guess that's the, Steph, you've, you've taken the words right out of my mouth. It's the, here's a convenience assessment. The convenience being, I'm going away. The doctor that saw her said, well, you're going away. You better go to emergency. Now you're going to emergency, and because we have tools in emergency that you don't have in the outpatient's clinic, we use those tools, and now we're presented with a conundrum of trying to explain things we may not have found because if, if she weren't going away. So I don't disagree with all of the differential, but this is a two-day history, and I'm not really sure. I don't think we have enough information to start to, to put together really very much of anything. We are told her abdominal pain is the reason that she saw the physician, which in by physical exam, the abdominal pain wasn't found to be the bigger issue. So I, I think this is a morning report. So we're going to go down a cascade of events to arrive at a diagnosis. But in real time, I'm not sure that I wouldn't just say, okay, well, cancel your trip and let's see how you are in a few days. Yeah. So if you were, yeah, I, I think this is this is again such a good point so we're here in a morning report but it is worthwhile like thinking through sort of going through the thought experiment here and saying what would i do if this was in real life and i was the doctor that this patient was referred to in the emergency department i i wonder if i would do the same thing i think i'd say i don't know you've been sick for like this could be i'm a little bit concerned about the extent of the lymphadenopathy but maybe just have a bad i don't know bad enteritis or something like Maybe let's give this a few days and see how you look in a few days. You know, if it's a cancer, you're not going to lose a whole lot by waiting a few days. 
I think that's where I'd be leaning to. But okay, let's but let's say, I think, that, uh, let's say that's not I, an option. I would say the same thing, Steph, is, you know, if initially, like we're trying to make a case out of something knowing that it's probably going to be something complicated. But if someone came into the emerge with abdominal pain, some diarrhea, you know, and their electrolytes look good, and they were hemodynamically stable, I think in most cases, you would send them home or just for an evaluation down the road. But I, I would say that I agree that the CT scan that's quite significant lymphadenopathy. And I, to me, I would kind of hedge my bets if that was a fair statement. And I would probably order some more investigations prior to doing so, right? That may point towards a diagnosis, right? One of the things that I always kind of try and focus on initially is the CBC and does that give me any clues, right? Because the fact that the hemoglobin is normal, platelet count is normal, somewhat reassuring that they don't have any sort of marrow dysfunction, marrow infiltration, if you're starting to think along the lines of lymphoma. You know, if you're thinking of TB, then the question will always arise, like, why do they have TB? Are they immunosuppressed? So sometimes before we had rapid testing of HIV and stuff like that, we used a low lymphocyte count as kind of a sign that, you know, in a sick patient presenting as a sign that they may have some sort of immune deficiency. So, I mean, there is some reassuring nature of their blood work, but there probably would be a few more things that I would want to look at, you know, blood films, stuff like that before I sent them on their way. And then, you know, theoretically send off some preliminary investigations so that even if you thought they were stable and your plan was to follow up with them in a couple of days, things like cultures and stuff would be presumably quite helpful, right? Yeah, I okay, think that's so also a good point that, you know, what if she came to you and said, I, I still really want to go on this trip? <laughs> like, <laughs> kind of how to obviously, you know, suggest that if you're having ongoing diarrhea, probably not the best thing to travel with other people. But if, you know, if she said, oh, I want to go for a week and come back, it sounds like based on what we've kind of heard so far that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily feel like I had to adamantly say, no, you cannot leave. This is something urgent that we need to work up right now. Yeah. So uh, in terms of history, is there anything else that we really want? Or are we just going to start ordering tests? So we're I just wondered a bit more about risk factors. Yeah, and travel as well, if, travel. if Sabina knows anything more about that. Okay, and then I'm going to assume there's nothing salient there, but Sabina will tell us. What about just I, preliminary I, investigations? Yeah, I mean, in the history, I'd still do a bit of a deeper dive into the world of autoimmunity, you know, arthritis. It's still sticking there, those two points about the microscopic hematuria, and maybe I'm revealing my bias as a nephrologist, but, you know, I'd still ask about weird rashes that you've ever had, you know, arth arthritis, you know, any of those kind of connective tissue symptomatologies that uh, we've been presented with. I think there was a very good travel history and no weight loss and constitutional symptoms didn't seem too bad. So I'd, I'd probe in a little bit more on that. Okay. Sabina, is there anything there historically wise? No, not very helpful. So she was feeling well before this diarrhea. Uh, she didn't have any rashes or arthralgias. She hasn't had any like pharyngitis or otitis media or hearing loss. She hasn't had any respiratory symptoms, uh, no known TB exposures or traveled to endemic countries, never been incarcerated or in a shelter or anything like that. And she's actually up to date even to her malignancy screen. So she was fit negative the year before and she had a negative pap smear the year before as well. Uh, and no family history of any malignancy, autoimmune or inflammatory conditions that she knows of. Shall we start where, ordering? Where, where, where is she from, Sabina? Uh, she's from Alberta originally and then moved here. Where? Uh, Edmonton. Okay. And her living conditions are? Uh, she's in an apartment here with her cat. Yeah, aside from her cat. So, And what kind of things, <laughs> what kind of work does she do? Uh, she works in business as like an executive assistant. And where was she going to travel to? 
I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> and Sabina, we'll, we'll presume there's no significant family history of unusual diagnoses or anything like that. Is that no. correct? Okay. I mean, just the, the only point I'd make is, and the intervention at this time with this amount of history, I'm always concerned, like, and I agree with everything that's been said, but would the, would the finding of an ANCA, would that make our diagnosis? Would the finding of a biopsy of lymph nodes showing inflammatory changes make our diagnosis? So the testing sometimes, you know, I'm just, I'm cognizant of the fact that the testing as well may be as misleading as the history. And, and I don't, I'm usually not, I'm not negative on this. It's just, it just, it's all presenting a bit oddly. Yeah. Yes. But this could be, Barry, as you're saying, the abdominal pain, the, the acute problem for the past two days could be a red herring. And we've incidentally now found something that is abnormal that we yeah. now have to chase down, you right. know. I, no, no, absolutely. I don't, yeah. I, I don't disagree with what's been said. It's just like, where is my role in, in the intervention mm -hmm. of trying to assess this? I'm, I'm having a bit, it's, it's not like we've found something dramatic clinically that suddenly has changed. It's convenience. And incidentally, eating too much red herring will cause diarrhea. So that's a whole other. <laughs> I see. Uh, oh, from, another red herring. From personal experience. When when I'm explaining when I when I go over cases, uh, sort of ambiguous, weird cases with with residents, I often I, I find myself saying, you know, the two best doctors in the world are time and Google. And here, I think we may need more time. Uh, we're going to start ordering things now, but I mean, yeah, in real life, I, I think more time would would be really helpful. Here. And I always tell them the third best is Barry Kasson. Barry Kasson is such a good doctor that he, did, he when he asks about travel history, if you notice there, if you go back and listen, he wasn't asking where she'd been. He wants to know where she's going. That's how good a doctor Barry Kasson is. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's right. I'm predicting what you might get. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the, the salient things here are leukocytosis and lymphadenopathy. What do we want to... pretty diffuse lymphadenopathy what do we want to start biopsying things i don't know tempting i think we're gonna i i think we're gonna go back to the basics start with the obvious right they've got diarrhea abdominal pain so mm -hmm. i think we'd send the stool off for yeah. a c diff you know cultures o and p to just focus back like like we've all said you got to focus back on the primary problem why the patient actually came in or was sent in right so so i think i would definitely do that as part of our workup they've got a leukocytosis so Presumably, you're going to send some blood cultures, and you're probably going to do just a basic chest X-ray as a screening tool for a number of reasons: a for the leukocytosis, but b also given this history of the saddle deformity and things like that, um, and the lymphadenopathy. And then I guess because of the history of the microscopic hematuria, not that this would be something that would compel the patient to stay in the hospital, but it would be interesting to see have a repeat microscopic urinalysis and some quantification of protein. So the quickest one would be like a urine ACR, because if both of those things were abnormal, you would know that there is some sort of systemic process starting to affect the patient's organs. So, so what I would do at this point is I would get the pathology from the nasal reconstruction. Mm. And that may actually be more informative, but certainly if there was pathology, sometimes they're not, but if there's if there was evidence of granuloma or vasculitis, I think that would be very informative. But aside and I don't disagree with Gerald, I think it's fine because it's really the sort of recipe that we use when you present with these symptoms. 
But again, it's early, early days. Kat? Yeah, I'm just uh, processing, I think, all of this as we go on. I'm, I'm curious to hear from Gerald, actually, with the microscopic hematuria. We talked about vasculitis, whether you would send off, you know, an ANCA, for instance, at this stage, or as you said, is that sort of not so pertinent to her diarrhea and her current presentation that it's something we would hold off on? Again, as, as Barry's saying, that's probably not going to clinch the diagnosis, but I'm just, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on, on timing of sending those. Yeah, so I, I think what would, what would determine if I went any further would be the, if there is current presence of microscopic hematuria or proteinuria. Because mm-hmm. I, I think at the end of the day, if there is nothing there, then the rest of the present, the rest of the current presentation doesn't really sell me on a vasculitis, right? Diffuse lymphadenopathy and abdominal pain, though you can get some presentations of vasculitis that give you abdominal pain. So that's why I think in, in those cases, that information would be helpful. If you see microscopic hematuria, then I would, and especially if you had a little bit of proteinuria as well, that would suggest to you that there's glomerular inflammation. And so I would send off the whole panel, including, you know, the ANCAs. The other thing I would probably do that I I think, you know, you get a smear, an LDH, you know, there's a lot of lymphadenopathy there, right? So if we're going to go down the, the road of the lymphoma, it would be good to look at the extended electrolytes, smear LDH, things like that to kind of, you know, there's simple tests that you can get back fairly quickly. Yeah. And then, then I, I wonder about, I mean, I feel like we're, we're going to need to go down the biopsy path and probably part of why she was referred to internal medicine was what to do with these lymph nodes. But obviously there's other testing that we could do first and then I think maybe a conversation with the radiologist too to see it, it sounds quite extensive and it sounds to me more like what than what you would expect for just in a fairly acute infectious process but I wonder if you know it's worth giving a little bit of time as, as others have mentioned and and then repeating some of that imaging but to me I'm, I'm a little bit worried that it's something we need to look into more closely sooner than that. I guess the other question I would have is what's the health of her cat? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I mean, it, there have been stranger issues with pets that have been unwell. So, what type of what's the the background? There's the issue of toxo. When you bring up toxo, you talk about all of the things we've talked about, and you don't need to have a sick cat. But it's just another. I mean, we're invoking things that we can put together, but this is just another parameter to her illness. Good point, and we've already touched on you know whether there's an element of immunosuppression as well, and and that would increase her risk in that regard too. So I mean, maybe she's got mono. <laughs> I guess the cat's well enough that she feels comfortable going on her trip. The <laughs> cat behind. Her. I do think the the operative question to some degree is what are we actually doing with this lady? Yeah. Right. And so I think a are we telling her not to go on her trip, which I would say. Yes, because if you're going to another country, or where is your trip? Is it another country? Or? I think we don't know. Right? Oh, we don't know. Yeah, for some reason, the mention of the trip um, only comes up in the original note, but not. Okay. <laughs> I'm guessing not she where. didn't go. I would presume not <laughs> the greatest not. idea to go somewhere else when you're presenting with acute health complaints, because you could deteriorate. And especially if you were in another country, there could be issues with health coverage and things like that. So I think I personally would probably say, it would not be a good idea to leave the country with the symptomatology. But at the current time, you know, do I feel a compelling need to admit this person? Not 
there's nothing in the current history physical exam that would suggest I would need to admit her. So my, I don't know my current thought process, but I, it'd be good to ask everyone what they thought and whether they'd agree or not would be that you would expedite certain investigations, give it some time and then reassess the situation on a outpatient basis without waiting too long to see the person. This is the the patient for whom the rapid access clinics were invented, you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's my feeling. Hmm. All right. Uh, Sabina, let's shed some light. Let's give us some more juice. All right. Give you some additional investigation. So um, it was not mono. Her EBV came back negative. Um, her HIV is negative. They sent off some hepatitis serologies that were negative. An ANCA was not sent at this time. Uh, a urinalysis was repeated, uh, showed protein over three and hemoglobin that was moderate, but no nutrients <laughs> or nitrates. Uh, and a, mic a reflex microscopy wasn't done because it was sent originally for culture. I think a stool sample they were unable to send because she wasn't passing any at the time. And I think by the morning was having more formed stools. Uh, but one of the original things they sent off was actually an SPEP and UPEP as well. And that showed a discrete monoclonal band of 7.2 suggestive of an IgG lambda monoclonal protein associated with suppression of normal gamma globulins. And the UPEP uh, was positive for a Benz-Jones protein, also the IgG lambda monoclonal protein. Do you, do you know, I... Sabina, why, what the thought process was in, for sending those? Or was it just a, we don't know what's going on, let's, let's send this off? I think it was a, we're not sure. And we have lymphadenopathy and just kind of like closing up a possible malignancy screen. <laughs> wow. Interesting. I'm just going to take this opportunity to get up on my soapbox and just advocate that uh, a dipstick urinalysis to the audience that will eventually be listening is not acceptable. So there are a lot of false positives with the readings that you get on a dipstick. So, you know, I think everyone in, in the current panel understands that is that we do need a proper microscopy and a proper quantification of protein because of the flaws in a dipstick. So just my little plug there as a nephrologist because I see this all the time. Okay. What do we think about these new bits? Can we reconcile this? Can we ignore the, <laughs> the SPEP and the Ben Jones proteins? Or? Well, it's interesting. And if, if you'd asked uh, if we were consider if I was considering ordering something, I would have ordered serum for light chains. I wouldn't have done urine for protein lactophoresis. I mean, it really, there's nothing that suggests to me that this is a myelomatous-like process. So I, I don't know how to, it's just an, another piece of the information that just is kind of hanging out there. And I, I don't know how else to interpret it. Why would you choose the serum-free light chains, Barry? Because I was always taught that was better sort of for monitoring myeloma as you went along. So I'm just curious what why you mentioned well, that's the one you Well, because done. it's it's really looking at the ratio of, of kappa-lambda uh, light chains in, in a pathology. And it's not really helpful to make a specific diagnosis of myeloma. There's a number of neoplastic and inflammatory diseases. And I don't think clinically I would consider this myeloma. It wouldn't have come to my mind. And so that for that reason, I wouldn't have ordered that test. Yeah, I, I agree with Barry, right? I mean, there's there's no anemia, no kidney failure, no hypercalcemia. Like it just wouldn't and I order SPEPs in almost everyone. So um, <laughs> it wasn't something that came to the top of my mind. Nevertheless, we still have to reconcile now. We've got, so if we go back to kind of what we're dealing with now, we've got abdominal pain, diarrhea, diffuse lymphadenopathy, 
and now an IgG monoclonal protein. Um, and how are we going to reconcile all those? Because that's certainly not how myeloma would generally present, right? So that being said, it, you know, if someone has underlying hematologic disorders, are they immunosuppressed? Does that make them susceptible then to opportunistic type of infections, therefore leading to lymphadenopathy? Is the lymphadenopathy leading to the, you know, could, now you could start thinking if you go down the opportunistic infection route, there are lots of opportunistic infections that cause diarrhea, abdominal pain, things like that. So, you know, do you have to start thinking about things like CMV and other things that would not be kind of as common in an immunocompetent individual? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it definitely pushes me towards wanting to get that biopsy sooner. I think raising the malignant flag and whether you know whether these lymph nodes are related to a lymphoma or something like that in the background. So I'd be more keen to get get the wheels moving in that front. I think this lady's going to die of red herring poisoning. <laughs> Maybe that's the um, message of the case. Don't order yeah. tests that you don't know what to do the results with. Yeah, hard hard for me at this point to reconcile all of these seemingly disparate findings. This is a lady whose tests we would suggest when you're ordering. Please tick the tests of the hundred tests that you don't want. <laughs> okay, so not clear if the SPEP findings have anything to do with the adenopathy. And certainly even less clear that they have anything to do with the diarrhea and her acute illness. Okay, so what do we want to do next? And throwing up your hands and walking away is not. (laughs) Well, by this time, I think that all of us, I mean, I think if we would had our druthers, most of us would have said, go home and let's see what happens in a few days. Because it's really hard to, we're going to arrive at an answer, but we can do a lot of intervening and cause some morbidity uh, without really understanding what we're going to do with the answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I also think at some point, you know, okay, if we're going to go down a road of, let's say we've kept the patient and we're going to do more extensive investigations, I think it's fairly reasonable at some point to call a friend, right? And so now you have a patient with a discrete monoclonal band as well as diffuse lymphadenopathy. And so I... I personally would probably at least have a conversation with my hematology colleagues to, you know, determine because they may help guide which way you go, right? If they feel that the monoclonal band is of significance and needs further investigations, you're really thinking, you know, does this person warrant a bone marrow biopsy to look? Now, they may not be as impressed. They might say, do a skeletal survey first, you know, look for other signs of potentially myeloma, you know, as opposed to they might look at the splenic enlargement and the lymph nodes and make a suggestion that we go after the lymph nodes instead, right? But I think if if we were to investigate this person much further, the abdominal pain diarrhea, I want to see if it settles with time. Uh, I wouldn't treat it. And so the question would be tissue. Yeah. Do we need to get tissue? And I, I do think in that case, the hematologist might be helpful in uh, providing some guidance. But but just to take the be the devil's advocate. So now I'm the hematologist that you call, and I'm in my toolbox. I have a few tests and the possibility of doing a bone marrow biopsy. What is it amongst these tests that's going to suggest that? So I mean, we could do serum-free light chains. Light mm-hmm. chains. We can do immunoglobulins to see if if one of her immunoglobulins is suppressed that supports the diagnosis of myeloma. But I don't know that they're going to be able, I, I really can't say from the prediction, they're going to say, yes, do a marrow or not do a marrow. I'm just not sure how that That's would fair. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I think we could do the light chain skeletal survey, you know, some of those yeah. other tests, those would help us, you know, firm it up more and then, uh, and then go from there. But sometimes it can be helpful too to have that kind of pattern recognition, right? So if you do call your hematologist friend and they say, oh, this is, you know, we've seen X number of cases of lymphoma that presented like this, like absolutely you should go after the lymph nodes. I think that mm-hmm. that came up in our, our last case, right? That they took this very mysterious case to somebody and they said, oh, you know, I've seen this before. This is how it presents. So I, I, I do think that that extra yeah, yeah, opinion might be <laughs> I'm still not certain that that just wasn't a shot in the dark. <laughs> but that that case aside, I think, uh, I don't know, when you're puzzled about what's going on, it can be not, should we do a marrow or not? But what is your, what are your thoughts as, you know, a, a different kind of specialist as to what's going on here? So the group is warming up to the idea of lymph node biopsy plus hematology consultation. And now Sabina is going to tell us all the things that happen before those things happen. So the team was on the same page. They said, let's go get some tissue. But to do that, let's find a better lymph node. And knowing there was that cervical one on exam, they decided to get more test uh, imaging. So they got a CT neck chest with contrast to look for other more amenable lymph nodes than the ones in the abdomen. Um, And it unexpectedly showed more lymph nodes. So multiple bilateral upper paratracheal lymph nodes, but those ones weren't actually enlarged by size criteria a mildly enlarged uh, paratracheal node of 12 millimeters and a nine millimeter left hilar node of uncertain etiology. Uh, no axillary, supraclavicular, anterior metastinal ones. The one that they could see in the abdomen, the one that was uh, anterior to the suprarenal IVC had actually increased in size between the two days between mm-hmm. the abdo CT and the chest CT. And then there was that left-sided cervical adenopathy that was 17 millimeters that was amenable to ultrasound-guided biopsy. Um, there's also a calcified granuloma in the right middle lobe. Okay, that's um, so, a, I was going to ask if the <laughs> parenchyma in the lung was normal otherwise. So yes. just, just um, granuloma. And, and so the impression essentially was that, you know, in the absence of known malignancy, this could be reactive. But given that there's now cervical, thoracic, and intra-abdominal lymphadenopathy, a lymphoproliferative disorder would still be a diagnosis of exclusion. So just to remind us, I don't think that there are diagnostic testing to date has actually moved the needle one way or the other. We're still in the same <laughs> conversation. We could add to the conversation, although I think unlikely, granulomatous disease. We could add to the conversation amyloid. We could add to the conversation a lot of diseases. I mean, we could create patterns. But I think Gerald's initial thought, if we're going to have a pattern, the pattern that I would have glommed onto, even though she, this was two days, was really nothing to do with the two days and everything to do with the nasal uh, reconstruction or septal reconstruction and the microscopic hematuria. And th- therefore, we didn't even need her to come to emergency and have all these tests for us to be involved. Mm. Yeah, I think I, I feel like for me, that increase in size of the lymph node and this quite extensive lymphadenopathy has made me a bit more worried about malignancy than maybe originally I was. I think I was originally more on the autoimmune side. And that may still be where this goes because A, those tend to be interesting cases, but B, we have this nasal septal reconstruction and hematuria, et cetera. But I think for me, I'm a little bit more worried now than I was about malignancy as a, as a potential diagnosis. Sabina, was there any, um, you know, early markers of tumor lysis, you know, LDH, phosphate, uric acid, did the team presumably do that sort of stuff and look for that? Uh, we only have the extended lights that were normal. 
okay. no LDH or uric acid at this time. Okay. And going back to Barry's point, did someone eventually do a microscopic urinalysis and a urine ACR to kind of see what was going on in the kidneys or? Uh, eventually, yes. Um, and I can tell you that she does have uh, actual red blood cells. Let me try to pull them up, but not an ACR. Okay. All right. So essentially the team at this point, um, just move it along, did decide that, well, if we have a cervical lymph node that's amenable to ultrasound, uh, guided biopsy, let's go for it. Um, so obviously before their biopsy, they get some blood work. And uh, in the interim, her white count has normalized again, but her INR is two and her APTT is 45. And IR doesn't want to do the biopsy uh, <laughs> with those numbers. So, well, they do what all of us do. They gave her some vitamin K and her INR went from 2.0 to 1.9. So they gave her some more vitamin K, this time IV, and her INR went from 1.9 to 1.9. Were her liver enzymes, Sabina? Her liver enzymes have been normal, just the low albumin. See, so my prediction of hematology was... Great, great. I mean, now we're going to have to go into the realm of like investigating her abnormal INR PTT. So, and it's not correcting with vitamin K. So I think you said her liver panel was normal prior, yeah. right? The albumin's 30 but the bilirubin's normal. But now you have to start thinking about other, like go down the rabbit hole of, you know, elevated INR for other causes, right? This is disappointing. If I were her, I'd go on my trip. <laughs> Get it in now. We're, we're just making her sicker. Why is this lady's INR too? Well, I mean, she's certainly, so she has an inhibitor of some sort, whether it's an mm -hmm. antibody or not. I mean, and does she have a DIC and is this the beginning or is this TTP in a very unusual presentation? I mean, all of these things I think are a consideration, but boy, oh boy, oh boy, it just seems so bizarre. This is weird. Okay. So she, we think this is probably, yeah, she's got some inhibitor related somehow to this lymphadenopathy. It's, it's feeling more like things have taken a turn towards the hematologic malignancy sort of avenue. Is that right, or, or am, I, am I just spewing nonsense here? Yes. Oh, okay. I'm spewing nonsense? <laughs> I don't think no, it was yes, yes to the former, not to the latter. So, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, yeah, no, I do think we're, I, I do think we have to start thinking about the, yeah, is this a hematologic malignancy that has some, you know, effect on their coagulation mm -hmm. uh, parameters? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So we're, now we're doing mixing studies for the PTT. And yeah, I mean, yeah, heme is obviously we got to use a phone a friend here. They were probably already coming, but yeah, hmm. I, I feel like I don't know enough about that. Like, I don't know about a link between malignancy necessarily and these coagulation abnormalities. So, so understand agree. I, I think I would I would need a friend at this this point. Yeah, I mean, my recollection is that certain lymphomas you can get coagulopathies, but I mean, this is where it's useful because. The ones with the expertise may, I think, as Katrina said very eloquently, have an illness script that they've seen, you know, with regularity that uh, that may be very helpful, right? I think I remember in one of the other podcasts I listened to, Barry saying you find the kind of oldest, most experienced pathologist, um, but you could extend that to find the most experienced. We won't say oldest; we'll just say most experienced okay. um, hematologists, right? And uh, and r run it by them and say maybe there's something 
very straightforward in the world of hematology that explains all this that, you know, as those of us who don't do it on a daily basis don't recognize. Last time we had a hematologist solve a rheumatology case. Maybe we'll go yeah. talk to a cardiologist and see if they can solve it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Sabina, how did they proceed here? All right. So going back to talk to her, she doesn't know of any bleeding disorder. She had this nasal surgery in the past and didn't have any bleeding complications with that. Um, she's obviously not sneaking in any anticoagulants on the side and normally eats quite well and doesn't have any family history of bleeding disorders. Um, so at this point, honestly, she was feeling quite well and wasn't sure why she was still here getting all these tests. So she has to go home um, and made that, that, you know, overall, she did seem quite stable and that they didn't necessarily think there was a rapidly progressing malignancy at play. Um, so this is the point at which she went home with rapid access uh, clinic follow up. Um, so let's fast forward a month. Uh, she comes back to clinic. She has been feeling fine. No more abdominal pain. Uh, she has been taking some vitamin K supplements for good measure uh, and just kept eating even more fruits and veggies just in case. She hasn't had any bleeding from anywhere. And she was actually palpating that cervical lymph node that has resolved since she went home post-discharge. And on exam at this point, she appears well, has no palpable lymphadenopathy. Her spleen is barely palpable with a negative Castell sign from a very keen MSI-4. And the rest of her exam is still normal. Uh, so. Her interim investigations show that despite all this, her INR is still up at 1.6 and her APTT is still 45. So at this point, the team decided to, yes, proceed with a mixing study and then repeat the imaging to see how the rest of those lymph nodes look like. So if you want, I can just give you those results because that's kind of where you're, yes, please. I think everyone was at. So, and so, this, so Sabina, they mm -hmm. never biopsied anything, is that right? Because They the never biopsied either. anything. Yeah. So a few weeks later... Um, I can tell you that her outpatient blood work shows still an elevated INR and APTT. Her fibrinogen is high at 5, and her D-dimer was 670, so a bit high as well. Her mixing study showed complete correction after mixing with normal plasma, suggestive of more of a factor deficiency mm -hmm. picture, including liver disease or vitamin K deficiency. Other outpatient things, her renal function is a bit worse, so her creatinine is now 103 from 87 when she left hospital, from 79 when she came in. Um, and this renal function, or this uh, creatinine comes back before she got a repeat CT abdo with contrast. And then there was a repeat SPEP done that showed a similar gamma region of like 9.9, .9, but serum free life chains weren't sent yet at this point. Her repeat CT abdo pelvis shows a bit improvement of the splenomegaly, so now 14 centimeters from 15.5. And then there's there's some more nodes. So she has a three centimeter centimeter peripancreatic lymph node, but a normal looking pancreas that could be amenable via EUS. There are two ileocolic lymph nodes that aren't enlarged, but look a bit concerning, suggesting maybe a necrotic or cystic replacement. Um, and they're actually better than her previous CT when she was in hospital. And the rest of her organs and everything else looks normal. Okay. And so did her uh, diarrhea get better? Yeah, that was all fine. And yeah. so, Sabina, at this point, hematology has not been involved. Is that correct? Not yet. She's coming back to GIM clinic right. with these findings. Okay. And presumably, well, they did this CT wondering if something could be biopsied. Is that right? Because they've commented about this amenable yeah. biopsy. So I think it was to see whether things had gotten better in the interim. And if not, was there anything amenable for biopsy since the cervical node was now down? I mean, the reason why I mentioned the hematologist not just to help us make the diagnosis, but practically speaking, they canceled the last biopsy because of the elevated INRPTT, right? And if it's still elevated, 
even if we wanted to biopsy something, we're going to need help to either correct the abnormalities or convince the people doing the biopsy that it's safe to do so. So, you know, I think we're kind of stuck involving hematology for this. Now, we fortunately, there's more objective findings that are more in my area of comfort. So the, uh, the kidney function has now declined. So this person's creatinine has now gone to abnormal for a 50-year-old female, which the upper limit of normal would be usually 90 on, on those labs. And then Sabina, at, at this point, did we know that they had microscopic hematuria? Uh, yes. Okay. So, you know, this begs the question that one would be concerned about renal involvement of whatever the systemic process is going on. And then it raises another place that we could potentially do a biopsy and get tissue from. But this rolls back to having to convince or figure out a way to do it safely with the INR and PTT what they are. And probably still rather get a lymph node than a kidney biopsy. It's still safer, presumably. Yeah. yeah depending where you're going. Yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, let's go back to the INR and PTT. We, the mixing studies show that she corrects. So she's mm -hmm. deficient. She's mm -hmm. not got an inhibitor. Mm -hmm. So deficient in what? We've get, either she's not taking her vitamin K or she's spreading it on her skin or something, or it's, or it's other than vitamin K. So what deficiency does she have that would be supported by normal plasma other than vitamin K? I don't know. This is outside my wheelhouse. Right. It's just, it's, but I mean, I, I just think that I, I would wonder if she's taking her vitamin K or if we gave her enough. I, I don't know. I guess you'd have to look at her diet and her, we don't actually know her body habitus. Sabina, what is she? Heavy, slight? Do we know? Can you describe her to us? She's of average build and eats a full diet, doesn't have any concern for like um, food insecurity or anything like that. Right. But if you yeah. had a factor deficiency, it wouldn't really matter how much of vitamin K you had, right? If you just didn't have that factor, I don't think it would help to give you more vitamin K. Yeah. If she, oh, Sure. She may have a factor deficiency. Mm -hmm. It's true. Absolutely. So which factor is she deficient in? Yeah. 9, 11, well, 13? I think you have to do, yeah, I, I, like I think you have to now do the factors to get the deficiencies. I mean, you also have to start to think about like antiphospholipid syndrome, right? Which, so I think we'd have to do like lupus anticoagulant. But that um, wouldn't correct with a mixing study. Right. Mm, that's true. Yeah. So I think we should look at her factors to, to find out what she's deficient in. That might give us a clue. Yeah. I would not biopsy her yet. No, I don't think anyone would be comfortable biopsying her until yeah. we actually figured out why the INR was elevated. I'm yeah. not going to biopsy, but I would, I would ask someone else to do it. <laughs> so did <laughs> okay. So do we did we do factor analysis? Uh, yes. So two referrals were made at this juncture. One was to hematology, and the other was to GI to hunt down that peripancreatic lymph node. Uh, and I guess because the INR was now 1.6, uh, someone did go after it, and then she did get an EUS at this point. So the imaging report says that the pancreas looked normal and that the celiac axis didn't show any lymph nodes. They did find that uh, lymph node adjacent to the portal vein that was biopsied. And I can tell you now that the pathology showed no lymph node tissue, non-diagnostic. 
so and that the culture was negative, the fungal culture was negative, and the TV stuff was all negative. So God bless this lady for coming back. I'm oh, telling boy. you, she's not sick, and we're going to make her sick. <laughs> oh my God! So two weeks after that, we get our hematologist's opinion. Um, a factor, uh, I guess, like a factor test, wasn't sent off um, at that point, and. Essentially, they said, at this point, I wonder if there's a unifying diagnosis for lymphadenopathy, splenomegaly, a monoclonal paraprotein, and coagulopathy, um, and whether this might be something like a factor 10 deficiency, because that would be on the common pathway in the coagulation cascade. Mm-hmm. Um, would you guys like to know something that is associated with factor 10 that could be the answer, or would you like me to save that? Oh, God bless you. <laughs> Let's hear it now. <laughs> so speaking of pattern recognition... Um, the hematologist says that acquired factor 10 deficiency can be associated with amyloidosis. And then amusingly, the conclusion was the other explanation could be an incidental finding where one thing has led to another during hospital admissions and that all of this is unrelated. I hope it's not that. Okay. Amyloidosis. So that's something we talked about earlier, just briefly, but you know, it just, it just, it's another potential that could explain things, but it really doesn't until we have the factor analysis that was still kind of yes it's possible but why not okay do you know why sabina why you get that factor 10 deficiency with amyloidosis um i don't think i have a good explanation for you now (laughs) no problem just curious okay something for us to read about so okay so we're no we're no further with the lymph node so we need to go for another lymph node Biopsy, right? We're not just going to say this is myeloma with AL amyloidosis. That's 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 too many leaps for me. Like we need to go find amyloid or something. Also, like why is this? Why are these nodes changing so fast? They're you know, they're very evanescent for for you know for me. If you're going to have amyloidosis with lymphadenopathy, that lymphadenopathy is usually pretty stable, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah, I guess so I mean, they categorize they... the risk of the bleeding you know, in this situation, or if you gave factor 10, then the risk would be gone. I uh, guess yeah, so you could give like PCC and then right. theoretically the risk would be worth uh, less. Because, you know, we've already had, I mean, I realize that a kidney biopsy is more invasive, but you do have dysfunctional kidneys now. And when you look at yields of tissue in different organs, right, the kidney is a decent one where you'd probably get an answer if someone did have amyloidosis and light chain disease. And so it is progressively getting worse. So because sometimes when you hunt for these lymph nodes, you get subpar results multiple times. And so if the hematologist felt that with appropriate factor replacement, that the risk was akin to a normal individual, which is a very small chance of major bleeding requiring a blood transfusion and a very very small chance of a major complication, one could argue that you could go after the kidney. Uh, I would argue differently, though. I would say I would do serum-free light chains. That would have been something we talked about early. The lymph node that was potentially biopsyable wasn't biopsied. So I don't think I'd go there. I mean, so we're left with fat pad uh, analysis, which has never, in my experience, been very helpful, or a marrow to see if there's amyloid in the marrow. So I think Mm -hmm. I'd probably... I wouldn't go for the nodes. Well, it's already been gone for. I wouldn't go for the kidney just because of the potential downside of damage to her kidney. And I think I do those, consider those other twos and, and do the free light chains. Also, it sounds like they didn't actually get lymph node tissue, but it'd be worth making sure that those, whatever had been gotten, had been stained for amyloid, right? Because that's not done, I think, just routinely. So you'd have to ask for it. 
Okay, Sabina. That sounds fair. So the factor studies were done and confirmed a factor 10 deficiency. And serum-free light chains were done at this point that showed a ratio of 0.17. So her lambda was 143 to a kappa of 24. Mm. So that's a uh, going down kind of that route, they did do a skeletal survey that didn't show any lytic lesions. And then shortly after, they did do a bone marrow biopsy, which showed a plasma cell dyscrasia of 5 to 10% and negative Congo red stain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 5 to 10%. That's not that high, right? I mean, we got she's a got relatively well, small M protein. And we've she's got, got smoldering myeloma. She's got smoldering myeloma. <laughs> Poor lady. Oh, my gosh. Time is always your ally in this situation, right? And she still feels reasonably well. Yeah. So, like, even for the, you know, even for the renal piece, when you go back to it, it's been climbing. It'd be interesting to see two weeks, four weeks from now, what the persistent abnormalities are. I'm with you, Gerald. If that if the creatinine goes up to 150, 200, you know that this person's in trouble, right? I can give you that if you'd like. Sure. Do, do we, do we, this is a dumb question, but do we know that her coagulation studies were previously normal at some point? Uh, she doesn't have anything on record now. Really? She had surgery before with her nose and no one ever checked? Well, okay. I can try to check no, again, okay. no, but I don't okay. remember I can, seeing I can accept that. that. It's just, so we, I think, I think a few things here. One is, um, if she really has factor 10 deficiency, probably reasonable to assume that it's acquired, right? And, mm-hmm. and on a cursory, like, search on the internet here, it sounds like there's only a few ways to do that. You don't either you have liver disease or you're on warfarin or you have amyloidosis. So, so you take one, one fact that has a very limited differential diagnosis and then you move forward with that. I, I like using that as a strategy. So sounds like she probably has amyloidosis, you know? Yeah. Sounds like she does. Steph, I, I think I would make the assumption because you're right. Every surgery of any significance there's a baseline set of tests that they're going to order through the pre-admission clinic. So even if we don't have that information, I think I would probably make an assumption yeah. that the INR was not yeah. two because they would have canceled the surgery. So I think my, my other and, comment and here... didn't have any significant bleeding after, presumably. Right. Yeah. My other comment here is, you know, while I think it's true that time, like the tincture of time is so, so helpful or it can be, I sometimes wonder if I, like, I say that to myself almost like... Uh, as a security blanket to cover up my own like ignorance, you know, like, like sometimes I just can't figure something out. And so I say to myself, oh, time is gonna help this, you know, but I wonder sometimes if I've like missed things using that strategy. I, I don't really know. It's just it, it I hope that I'm not conveying that like, just waiting is always a good idea. I think sometimes it's a good idea. And you have to use your judgment. But sometimes you could wait and miss an opportunity to intervene, you know, I don't know. Like here, this is waiting is probably the right thing. If she really looks as good as everyone says she looks, maybe that's fine. But I also have a bad feeling about this lady. I was I was hedging with time, but two weeks from now, yeah, right. Not a lot, which is not a lot of time. Yeah, I'm not talking. So we need to be specific. Like I wouldn't bring this Billy back in six months. You know, there's something worrisome about this lady. Yeah, I mean, if you strip this all down. Right. And the the area that is within my level of expertise, if you just gave me a case where someone's credit went to 79 to 103 with microscopic hematuria, they would be getting a, you know, if we put all the coagulopathies aside and all the other stuff, 
they would have a high likelihood at 50 years old with no other explanation of getting a kidney biopsy yeah. in the near future. Yeah. 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 And I might use the tiebreaker as two weeks from now, I'm going to do one more creatinine and see if it settles down, maybe I'd hold off. Yeah. But if that creatinine's any higher, they're getting a kidney biopsy regardless of any other piece of information, as long as I don't think that it's going to harm them to any Even with a degree. bland urinary sediment and no significant... Oh, no, no, she, but she has an active urine. She's got... What, what, sorry, what is she? She has hematuria. She has microscopic hematuria. Okay. Yeah. All right. So what happened next, Sabina? All right. So I can tell you that a month and a half later, this is about six and a half months after her initial presentation, her creatinine is now 187. Oh, Gerald. Oh, Gerald. He's not happy. <laughs> Don't tell that to Gerald. Her, Gerald earmuffs, Gerald. Your analysis, her protein is still over three. Her hemoglobin's only trace, but she's got one to two RBCs on her microscopy. A urine ACR is done, and it's 891. Oh, 24-hour urine protein is 11.8. Oh, Gerald. <laughs> which we did ask for an acr at the very beginning it is never it was not done I, oh, did they really not do it at all this is the first time? one i can for find six months oh brother interesting oh brother okay so we're going after my kidneys so now what did her kidney buy up <laughs> congo red was uh yeah so she does get admitted for a kidney biopsy. And do you guys want the results of the biopsy right up? Yes, please. All right. Sounds good. Uh, the kidney biopsy does show AL lambda light chain amyloidosis. Yeah. Hmm. Bummer. So let me say that I think that our assessment has, and our thoughts were congruent. I think uh, I would wonder if her initial presentation had anything to do with anything. No, probably not. Right. No. So I think that, and, and I think that, um, you know, we systematically worked through and followed abnormalities, found new abnormalities for, uh, appropriately, or I think more likely appropriately, followed a, a reasonable path to try and sort this out. But I think, uh, I, I don't think we, I think we did the right thing. I think, wait and see if, if her creatinine would have gone back to 90 or 80, we would have done the right thing as well. So I, I think we did the right thing. I think we've also assumed that Sabina's done. Like as she might be about to tell us that then she presented with uh, purple stools. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, 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 uh, no. She was started on chemo. She's getting worked up for a stem cell transplant, and right now they're actually hunting to see if she has any cardiac involvement or not, uh, due to some, I guess, non-specific findings on a lot of her cardiac imaging. How did they do the cardiac imaging? <laughs> Barry, I think Barry makes a very good point here if we walk it back, right? The diarrhea, the abdominal pain, and all those factors probably presumably weren't related. That was an acute problem that just, you know, came up with an incidentaloma. If I think in my practice how this would have evolved if that hadn't happened, and say, for example, you know, I'd just been referred a 50-year-old who had a little bit of an elevated creatinine or microscopic hematuria, or someone had or the internal medicine clinic had been you know, refer to a healthy patient with lymphadenopathy and some mild abnormalities, it may have taken three to six months to come to that conclusion, right? Now, certain tests may have hinted things a little more. So if, you know, it kind of depends sometimes on where the patient goes and who they see, right? Because we're all going to have a different lens. So because I'm so biased in the world of nephrology, you know, I would have done a protein and a microscopic urinalysis right away and all those sort of things. And if I, it, I think people, if 
and ACR had come up with 500 at the time, it would have led people down a different thought process, right? So, but I still think that at the end of the day, these kind of vague diagnoses do take a little bit of time to diagnose, especially when the patient is doing quite well. But I, I also wonder if she hadn't had that abdominal pain and diarrhea, how much longer it could have taken to mm-hmm. make this diagnosis, because presumably the rest of her findings doesn't sound like there was a lot of symptoms associated with them. So would we even have had that creatinine or known about the protein or anything for much longer even, perhaps? Mm-hmm. And therein lies the danger, I think. When we, when we put together illness scripts and we actually insert ourselves into the illness script, which is sometimes what we do because we actually we put together things that are disparate. For example, the nasal septal surgery and the microscopic hematuria. And we do we can do a lot of these things, but on the in the context of the person, we may do them a disservice. And I think that we need to continue to think about that. What is what's the problem we're trying to solve for the patient? Not what's the problem we're trying to solve for us? And sometimes those are congruent. Maybe most times they're congruent, but sometimes they're disparate. And when they're disparate, I think the best thing to do is understand that we're looking at a different process and just wait. I think that's what I liked about this case is um, kind of how you guys felt in the very beginning, right? Where if you didn't know this was a morning report, then this wouldn't necessarily be interesting. I, I described as that feeling when you're doing like a rapid deteriorating patient sim and the patient is still fine, but you know they're supposed to not be fine very shortly. And so there's this moment where you're just overlooking into things, trying to find what it is that's going to set off the chain of events you're supposed to then dig up. And here, honestly, like if that, CT abdomen wasn't done, which I think if we were in those initial shoes, we wouldn't have ordered. I don't think any of this would have really gone the way it had. And I think in speaking to her uh, to get consent for presenting this case, she was talking about how uh, relieved she was that it was found because she also had the sense that had this not been done, this would have been left for much longer. And she wondered whether she should have, you know, pushed harder to find an answer for the microscopic hematuria back when that became a problem a year or two before. I also wondered, Sabina, did you, was there anything intentional about the way you presented her past medical history to us? Because I could see, you know, perhaps a medical student did this case. They decided not to mention the nasoceptal reconstruction or resident. I don't mean to single out medical students. And then we might not have had that sort of initial leaning towards an autoimmune cause just because we got those two things together right up front. Those actually were there right up front. Uh, the a student in medicine uh, junior who saw her initially already had those two things written down. Well, I think what we have to remember is that the microscopic hematuria could still be an incidental finding, right? It is not necessarily part of the illness script for amyloidosis involving your kidney, right? And I think you were saying that there was only zero, one to two red cells? So. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, she doesn't have, you know, what we term a nephritic presentation, right? She's got more of a nephrotic presentation, which is what you would normally see. So, uh, you know, that, while it was interesting, probably is not related. You know, I would go back to what Katrina was saying before, is that this patient is extremely lucky to have presented to the eMERGE, because where was this going to become evident, right? I mean, you would presume that her INR PTT being high is not going to cause any problems. Lymphadenopathy was coming and going. So I think you're invoking that eventually the kidneys would fail. But I mean, even at a creatinine of 180 and, you know, a protein level of eight, it sounded like she was relatively asymptomatic. So, you know, she may have actually presented even later with 
fulminant kidney failure as her presentation um, unless someone did some routine blood work because she said she wasn't feeling well, quote unquote, which is sometimes how it happens, right? So I think she's awfully lucky because it could have progressed even further before she actually became reasonably symptomatic for anyone to look into it more. This is cool. Cool case. Thanks, Sabina. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Any uh, any parting comments before I sign us out? Sabina, thank you very much for presenting a challenge. We You were usually down the rabbit hole and drowning ourselves, but this time we were <laughs> able to keep uh, our uh, nostrils above the waterline and, and sort of discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Sabina. I- I enjoyed this very much. I, I don't know if Barry remembers. I was Barry's chief resident many years ago. But, uh, you know, at one point when we used to run Morning Report every day, Barry said it, it always seemed to come back to the kidney whenever I ran Morning Report. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just very pleased that it ended up coming back to the kidney. <laughs> anyway, yeah. It was a good day for you to be here. It's a good sure. day for me to be here. And I didn't set it up at all. Sabine and I, Sabine, I'll give you a check later. Um, <laughs> yes, I was just about to say. <laughs> And uh, Thanks, everybody. it's very enjoyable. Thank you. Thanks for having me, everyone. All, All right. right. Bye. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, everyone. So this has been another episode of the St. Paul's Hospital Morning Report podcast. Please join us again soon for another episode.